So we're going to dedicate this year um, to uh, uh, the tefillah that Aviva Rachel Batchaya Sarah, um, that uh, they should succeed in having healthy children and build a healthy family. Um, I'll spare you the bigger picture, but um, big, big mitzvah that we should learn Lizchutam. Uh, and that they should succeed Bezrat Hashem having a healthy family Bezrat Hashem okay a big mitzvah alright Aviva Rachel Bat Chayasar so let's all have coming out a lot of good energy Bezrat Hashem so I want to tell you a, diff- a difficult story this is my mash a difficult story um, I am I am I'm broke um, in on uh, Rosh Hashanah of 2001, if I'm not mistaken. It was 2000, 2001, whatever. Um, all hell broke loose in Israel. And what they came to know as the second intifada began. Um, I'll spare you all the details of what that was and how it was and whether we should really be calling it intifada. Uh, but because this was after Oslo and because the Palestinian Authority had been created and because... Uh, they were still ruling both Aza and Yudav Shamran, you know, uh, ostensibly. Um, and because we actually gave the Palestinians 5,000 um, rifles, guns, M16s, to create a police force, um, you know, by the time this came around, instead of what had happened before Oslo, when if two terrorists wanted to get together, they had to find a way to train, it wasn't so easy, now they were training in battalion strength. Um, there was, uh, there, uh, the estimate was that by the time the second intifada broke out, there were 200,000 illegal guns floating around Yudav Shamran. That was just an unbelievable number. When I got to this country, that was unheard of, right? Um, shootings on the road, Molotov cocktails, bombings, bus bombings, horrible period of time. And uh, things got really bad really quickly, and so we got a Tzav Shemona. Tzav Shemona basically means that a Knesset committee can call you up for the reserves, um, without giving you advance notice. You don't get a draft order, you can't prepare. I think I mentioned this to you once, or maybe it was last year, but uh, you know, you get a call at one o'clock in the morning for your battalion commander. He says, we've gotten to Tzav Shemona, we're being drafted. Um, and we all started getting listed numbers to call. Uh, and my question to him was, well, when do we have to be, when do we have to be in? He said, now. I said, well, how long are we going to be in for? He said, I don't know. And basically, one minute you're you know, catching up on email and preparing a shear. And the next minute, you're in your uniform and you're in a Jeep and you're doing patrols and you're dodging bullets and you're managing gunfight and whatever else is going on. Crazy. And, and, and this entire thing was happening not that far from my home. Our line was opposite Bed But of all the different stories that happened, I think this one was probably the most difficult. I had actually met him a couple of days earlier. He was the Samach Mempei, the deputy company commander of one of the... Yechidot um, Sadir, one of the um, the regular army units that we were interfacing with, um, and we had actually done something together like a few days earlier, just to make sure we were all on ready alert. And he was from a serious yechida on the Sakravit, I think it was. And um, one afternoon, a few days after I had met him, um, there was a, a, a gun battle that started um, by El Khader. El Khader is an Arab uh, village on the edge of Bethlehem. And you can see it. You pass by it on the tunnel road when you come from Gush Etzion to Bethlehem. Thank God it's been quiet for 20 years, but back then it was a challenging situation. And uh, they were shooting at the roads. And they were situated a couple hundred yards from the roads. 
Um, so this unit was the one on call and they got the alert and a Jeep showed up, right? And it did what a Jeep is supposed to do. Mind you, they're terrorists and they're on top of a low hill and they're firing at, at a highway, like, you know, where you and I would be driving. Uh, there were five people killed during those couple of weeks. So their job is not normal. It's not the normal situation where you w- wait for reinforcements and call in support. You've got to stop this firing because they're shooting at civilians. So they they got close, whatever, and as they got closer and they were able to get to the point where they could maybe charge up the hill, um, a second unit of Palestinians, of terrorists, opened up behind them and this whole thing had been a setup. They were basically ambushed. One of them was killed on the spot and the other one was terribly wounded. Now this is a difficult situation. You have a soldier, he's seriously wounded. He's lying in Shetach Patuach in an open area. He's under fire and there's no cover. You can't reach him. So the next jeep that arises on the scene is this Samach Mempe, this deputy company commander. He's the Chapak, he's the, whatever, the roving command post. Now, what he's supposed to do is very clear. It's an impossible situation, you know, to risk the lives of your men to try to get to this soldier. You have to wait for reinforcements, you wait to call in air support, you wait to call in, you know, bombard them, bring a mortar, whatever it is you have to do. Nobody really knows why he made the decision he made. I was in part of the tahkir afterwards, the briefing afterwards. But he decided that he wasn't going to wait. Maybe it was the sight of a comrade in arms lying, crying. I mean, I heard the reports afterwards. Maybe it was, you know, that this boy shouldn't die alone. Maybe he had an idea that he could maybe get him out. I'm not sure. Now, it was a dangerous thing to do. And in the Israeli army, if you're a San Juan Pei, and there's a dangerous mission, you don't give it to one of your men. So he set up a cover fire position, told him to cover him, and he went in to get this boy. Maybe it was the tradition that we have in the army, which you've heard me talk about, which is uh, nobody gets left behind. You don't ever abandon a soldier and anything you can do to save him. He got to this soldier. He managed to hoist him up echad al echad. You know, you train for this in, in, in maneuvers, how you roll a guy over on your back and get him on your shoulders and can run with him and whatever. And he gets about halfway back to the road. Um, some of the soldiers who were there later would testify that they saw the Palestinians grinning. Right? They waited until he got almost to the road before they cut him down. And he was killed with this soldier that he was trying to save. Both of them eventually were killed. Um, Brothers in death forever. And that story has stuck with me because it raises a very difficult question. Was he right? Was he right? Do you put your life in danger like that? For another? Are you allowed to do that? Rav... um, Ephraim Ashri, who was one of the last Rabbanim of the Kavno Ghetto. Um, you've heard me talk about him before. He was asked very difficult shilas during the, the Shoah. And he kept a record of what the questions were, what his answers were. And after the war, he, he wrote them up with much more research, you know, filled in the blanks because he didn't, you know, it was during the war in the ghetto. And um, published a five-volume set called Mima Makim from the Depths some of the most incredible halakhic literature you will ever find. One of the questions he gets asked there 
is if a person's on a death march and he sees a comrade fall by the side of the road. Right? They were, I mean, if you know anything about the history of the Shoah, in the winter of 44, 45, which was one of the most cold, miserable winters on record, uh, temperatures in Europe went to the minuses by the, by the and then some. Um, the Germans were determined to finish their work. And if that meant marching tens of thousands of Jews halfway across Europe to get it done, that's what they would do. Um, you know, one of the most infamous death marches was the death march from Auschwitz to Dachau. They went from Poland to Germany in the dead of winter. Some of them had no shoes on. They were walking in striped pajamas. They were on barely any food, and some days they had no food at all. And they dropped like flies. And if, a, if, a, if an inmate fell and he couldn't get up, then the SS walked past him, and they either shot him, or if they didn't want to waste their bullets, they beat him to death. So you're on a death march, and somebody falls. Are you allowed to step out of line to help him up? Now, if you don't step out of line to help him up, he'll probably be dead. You're condemning him to death. On the other hand, if you do step out of line to help him up, you're putting your life in danger. And you could be shot if they see you. You weren't allowed to do that. Never mind that on a death march, helping another weighs you down and that could get you killed as well. Are you allowed to do that? Who says you're allowed to put your life at risk for someone else's life? Right? Now, why do I raise this question? Where do we find this question? Obviously, in this week's parasha. Pardon? Nope, not Shimon, although that's a good guess. Shimon is taken as prisoner against his choice. He has no choice. But who, correctly? Yehuda. Right? They're on their way home. Yosef waits until they're halfway home. He's going to teach them something. And they search the bags because the goblet, the gavia of Yosef, a.k.a. Safnat Paneach, who they think is an Egyptian, maybe, is missing. Now, they know exactly where it is because they planted it there. But the brothers have no idea. And they search from the eldest to the youngest, which is a whole interesting question. Why do they start from the eldest and the youngest? What, are they, what message are they giving? It's all in order, fine. And they find it, they find the gavia in Binyamin's pack. And so at the end of the last week's portion, just when they think they're good, they turn them all around and they go back to Egypt. Now, by the way, if you look carefully, the rest of the brothers do not have to return. They want Binyamin. So there's something happening here that 10 brothers are going back to Egypt, putting their lives in danger for their younger brother. This is so obviously the antithesis of what occurred just a parsha or two earlier. So they get before Yosef, right? And Yosef basically says, I don't need you. You didn't do anything wrong. But he's going to prison. So Yehuda steps forward. That is one of the most powerful words in the Torah. Whenever you find the word Vayigash, it doesn't just mean, it's not a random word. It's not like literary style. Yehuda is stepping forward to who he's meant to be. And by the way, you can look for this. Whenever you find the word Vayigash, you will find that this is the case. I have to tell you something. You have to allow me a moment. I know you're Pharaoh. You could kill me in a moment. Yehuda is risking everything here. And he begins to repeat the history. 
It's another question. Why does Yehuda have to repeat the history to Yosef? You know, you get a moment. You have the president's attention. Why are you going through this whole story again? I'm going to leave you to think about that. Right? We know what the end of the story is. Right? Yehuda says something, and Velo Yachol Yosef Li Rav Yoh Binun has a magnificent article in Magadim, which he talks about the idea, you know, what was it that, that turned everything for Yosef? Right? Yehuda says, you know, we had this brother, and he's not here because Ach Tarof Taraf, he was eaten by a wild animal. And Yosef, if you look in the Pesukim, that's the first time Yosef ever heard this. Remember, Yosef doesn't know what they did. He was taken off to Egypt. He has no idea that they dipped his coat in blood, that they went back to Yaakov. In fact, one of the questions Chazal asks is, why does, Yo- why does Yosef do all this to the brothers? Like, what really is going on here? Right? If you think about Yosef's mindset, Yosef is in a pit. What is Yosef thinking? Right? Well... One way to look at this is Avram has two sons. Yitzchak and Yishmael. What happens to Yishmael? He's sent away. Now, Yitzchak has two sons. Yaakov and Esau. And one of them, from the Torah perspective, is also sent away. Right? There's two boys and one of them survived. One of them is the future of the Jewish people. The other one goes away. He's gone. He's, he's a different path. So there's a conflict in the next set of brothers. And he ostensibly is sent away. Now, why is he sent away? Why is he sold into slavery? Who's responsible for this? Well, who sent Yosef out to look for his brothers? Yaakov. Well, that couldn't be. Yaakov loves me. He's my father. He gave me the Ketonah Pasim. This, this, he must not have known about this. He's going to come find me. But Yaakov never comes to find him. Why isn't Yaakov looking for him? Yaakov is the grandson of Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu has audiences with the pharaohs, with Abimelech, with the king of the Plishtim. He fights, he wins a world war. His son Yitzchak makes treaties with kings. This is an established family. Right? Shechem and Hamor make a treaty with, with, with Yaakov. It doesn't end well. So what, it would be difficult for Yaakov? He doesn't have any influence. He can't figure out where in Egypt they are. A year goes by, two years go by. What does Yosef think? Maybe Yaakov's not looking for him because Yaakov was in on it. And maybe that's why Yosef, when he becomes Potiphar, uh, when he becomes the viceroy, he doesn't go looking for, for Yaakov. Because if that's what Hashem wants, that's what Hashem wants. Until Yehuda steps forward and says, Ach Tarof Toraf. Your, your brother was ripped up by an animal. Wait a second, you told him that I was eaten by an animal? You mean he didn't know? You mean he wasn't in that? Okay. But there's a middle stage. And Yehuda basically says, I'm an array for my younger brother. I'm responsible for him. We're responsible. Take me instead. Is he allowed to do that? Is he allowed to do that? The Gemara Psachim and Daf. Chafeim Bez has the following scenario. This is a longer sugya, so I'm just sharing you the short version. Right? Amar li zil, right? Amar li mari durai. Amar li zil katle leplanya. Ve'ilo 
Katalina Lach. If somebody comes to you, in this case a non-Jew, and says, go kill that guy, or I'm going to kill you. Are you allowed to kill someone else in order to save your life? So the Gemara says, right? Liktaluch, velo tikto. You have to be willing to die and not to kill. Why? My chazit to damadidach sumak Because who says your blood is greater than him? How do you have a right to go take someone else's life and save your own? Right? Can't do that. Okay? And Rashi here explains. Since you know that no mitzvah stands in the way of pikuach nefesh, right? If they tell me that I can eat treif or I'm going to die, I have to eat treif. The mitzvah to eat a cheeseburger and save your life, right? So you think this one also. I'm doing a mitzvah, I'm saving my life. Pikuach nefesh. Pikuach nefesh. This is not the same as other Averot. To be nefesh, because someone's going to get killed here. The Torah only allows me to be doche mitzvah, to, to, to not do a mitzvah, because Hashem loves the Jewish people, and therefore every Jewish life is, is valuable. But here, there'll be an Avera, there'll be murder. And a soul will be lost. Who says you're more beloved to him than me? I don't have a right to make that decision. So if I don't have a right to make that decision and take someone else's life, who says I'm allowed to make that decision to take my life? Am I allowed to do that? Right? Difficult question. The Shulchan Arach and the Choshen Mishpat, Choshen Mishpat is where we deal with um, these types of laws, among other things, all these surin. So if you look in, in um, Simon Tafchafei, this is the area, what is that, uh, 425, there are four sections, Zerchon Arach, Arachayim is all about the daily laws, Zerchos Shabbat, Zerchos Tefillah, whatever, right? Um, Evan Ezer is all the laws of Vinyan Nashim, marriage, divorce, etc., Yeradeh is Yisrael Heter, and Choshen Mishpat is ethical dealings with fellow human beings, business ethics, etc. And one of these topics is issues with the courts. Right? A lot of the business laws and, and capital punishment laws are in Choshen Mishpat. So there's a case here of a Rodef. And what's a Rodef? A Rodef is someone who's chasing someone else, and he's going to kill him. And it doesn't matter for the moment why he's going to kill him. Maybe he's justified, it doesn't matter. But right now, without a bezdin, without witnesses, without warning, this person wants to kill that person. So the halacha here talks about the responsibilities that I have. Right? I'm not allowed to just kill the rodev. I have to try to stop him. But if the only way to stop him is to kill him, then that's what I have to do. And so the Gemara says, right, what about an ubar? What about if a woman comes into the hospital? This is a practical issue. My daughter is a gynecologist that comes up, unfortunately, often in hospitals. Or a woman comes in, and you feel that her life is at risk unless you terminate the pregnancy. Now, if you terminate a pregnancy that's a one week old, you're not really killing someone. It's, it's, an embry- it's not even an embryo yet. But if you terminate a pregnancy, God forbid, in nine months, so that's a baby that's viable. So at what point, who takes precedence? So Allah is very clear. Allah says that until the head, and some say the head and part of the shoulders, comes out of the woman, right? it's not yet born. It's not the same level of life. That baby 
is threatening the life of the mother, and therefore, again, don't walk away with Sakalak, it's a much more complicated issue, but therefore, if it's threatening the life of the mother, the mother's life takes precedence. Allah is very clear on this, it's very different from the whole debate that you have in America, right? But the, the Shulchan Aruch here, Rabbi Yosef Karo, gives a reasoning for this, right? If the if the, the, the fetus is, the baby is threatening the mother's life, you're allowed to cut out the baby, God forbid, because it's threatening the life of the mother. But as soon as the baby pops its head out, then you're allowed to touch the baby. And if that means the mother dies, the mother dies. Because we don't choose one life over another. Now based on this halacha, it's highly problematic what Yehuda does. How is Yehuda allowed to do this? Difficult question. And I want to add one more piece. And this could be a two-hour shear, but I'm going to make it five minutes. All right? I want to add one more piece. This is one of the most powerful points in the entire Torah. Because Yehuda, who is on his way to becoming one more terrible example of failed potential and lost leadership. Yehuda, who, 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 who decrees that his brother should be thrown in a pit, who at least seems to say, why don't we just sell him? <coughs> what profit is, it, is there in his death? Who is so distraught over this whole event, at least that's my interpretation, that he ends up leaving the house of Yaakov and marrying a Canaanite woman? who will ultimately end up sleeping with what proves to be his daughter-in-law because he thinks she's a prostitute. This is not a candidate for the chief rabbinate. It's not good. And the next thing you know, Yehuda is blessed by Yaakov on his deathbed, and he becomes the future royalty of the Jewish people. Lo yasul shevet miyuda. The scepter of, of rulership, of kingship, of monarchy will never leave Yehuda. Yehuda will be the scion of David HaMelech, ultimately Mashiach ben David, the future of the Jewish people. How does that happen? In this story. In this story, Yehuda becomes royalty. He proves worthy to be a king. How does that happen? With one simple line. Right? Right? What what does Yehuda say? What is the argument that carries the day? What allows them to put his life in danger? You have to understand Allowing yourself to become a slave in ancient Egypt is, I mean, that's, that's a death sentence. Right? Yosef was in a lime pit for 12 years. Nobody talks about that. It's, it's a miracle. We talked about this this week in one of the shiurim. It's a miracle <coughs> that he survived. It's like meeting an Auschwitz survivor. You know, my brother-in-law married a girl whose father was a survivor. He passed away a year, year and a half ago. And he was a survivor of four different camps. He spent a year and a half in Auschwitz. I did not understand what that meant. He was a very strong fellow. I did not understand what that meant until I started to learn more about the Holocaust. The average life expectancy in Auschwitz was three months. People who came from Poland, Czechoslovakia, they didn't speak German. They didn't have a hope of being able to survive. If you got caught doing something the Nazis deemed to be illegal, like, I don't know, passing a piece of bread, or turning around during a roll call, and for whatever the reason, 
The soldier wanted to make an example of you. One of the ways they did this was they tied you to a pole, right? Right in the, in the central square in the Umsteigplatz. And they gave you lashes. And when they gave you lashes, which could be 10 or 20, you had to count each lash. And you had to count in German. Eins, zwei, drei. And if you got it wrong, they started over again. So if we were a Polish Jew who didn't know German, never mind if you were from Holland, your life expectancy was nil. So think about Yosef for 12 years in the lime pits of Egypt. I didn't even survive that. How is Yehud allowed to do this? Ki Because I araved, I araved this boy, this Binyamin. Now what does aravus mean? What does aravus mean? So we once had a discussion about this, but I'll just remind you, right? You know, there's a, there's a sandwich. And they sell it in Yushalayim. It's called a Milrav. Does anybody here have a Milrav in there? Have you had a Milrav yet? Oh, guys, you're not serious. Do you know what a Milrav is? All right, it's like, um, it's all these different types of meats, and they're all mixed up. It's like a cholent in a lafa. It's unbelievable. Okay? <laughs> like when I get to Shemayim, I'm going to have a suffix. Because on the one hand, it's going to be a bowl of cholent, on the other hand, it's going to be a milrav. And it's going to be waiting for me. And I'm going to have a suffix. Which one I made the bracha on? It's a, it's a problem. Right? Why is it called a milrav? Because the stuff is all mixed up to such a degree you can't tell the difference. It's like a good cholent. You can't see the meat and the potatoes. It's all milrav. Right? What does kol yusra arivim zebazem mean? Right? It's like that story I told you when I signed for someone in a mortgage. Remember that story? Right? I was called into the bank. You know, we had this thing when I was in yeshiva. We, we all, around about the same time, realized there's no rent control in this country. So, like, renting an apartment is not a good move. They just raise the rent whenever they feel like it. So you have to find a way to own a place. And that's how you start. You get yourself a little place. Eventually, when you have enough money, you sell it to get a bigger place. And that's how, and then eventually... Kids grow up and you sell that when you go down again and whatever. Now you can't really afford to buy an apartment. The bank is buying the apartment and they're letting you live in it. And you pay a mortgage. Now how do you get a mortgage? As a banker to say to you, you know, sure I'll lend you 100,000 shekels. I mean I'm working as a Mishnah teacher for 70 shekels a week like it's not. So, although it's a very different system now, it's a lot easier to get a mortgage now. But back then, you get four other guys to sign for you. And if four guys sign for you, the bank figures, okay, these are four guys, they have a job, they're not each earning enough, but that's enough. Okay. So, that's what we did. I had four or five friends, and this one signed for me, and that one signed for me, whatever. Then they buy a place, and they get a sign for them. So one of these guys called me up, he had just gotten, you know, they, they signed the deal, and now he has to go to the bank to get the mortgage. Can I go and sign? I said, in buy What a mitzvah. So the next morning, I went to the bank. And I get to the bank, and the guy says to me, oh, Atari Shon, you're the first one. Right? There's five of us, and I'm the first. I'm like, yeah, you know, it's Jesus, right? Yeah, great. He looks at me, he goes, I don't think you understand what I just said. You're the first one on the list of the people who've signed over to be Arevim, responsible for this loan. I said, yeah, I know. Right? I'm not worried. He said, you need to understand that if the loan is reneged on, they're going to come after you first. And it's not like it's an automatic split. The bank doesn't care. They come after you and they take your house. 
then they're not going to run after four different guys. You're first. So I said, I'm not worried. I'm not worried. This is a good friend of mine. He'll never renege on his loan. The guy leans forward to me and says, you still don't understand. When you sign this document, it's not his loan anymore. It's your loan. You're a rave. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, that's what it means in the Pasuk. <laughs> that's what it is. What does that rave with me? It's true. What does that rave with me? It's wearing Makos, right? I've never thought I think quotes this, right? There's more in Sanhedrin and Dafkufiud Alf. This is a better example. Can two tribes divide a city? Can two tribes divide a city? Every Shevet has its Chalkav, Eretz Israel. Can, can a city be owned by two tribes? And the Gemara Paskins, no. So Yochan says, wait a second. We know that's not true. How do we know that's not true? And may know, because Yushalayim. Yushalayim falls in two Chalkot. Half the city is Binyamin. And half the city is Yehuda. So here you have two tribes they are sharing. And the Gemara says, no, no, that's different. Because Yehuda says, how does Yehuda get Binyamin to come down? Yehuda says to Yaakov, Yaakov doesn't want to let him go. Reuven says, you know, you'll take my kids. Yaakov isn't interested. Yehuda says something that causes Yaakov to say, okay, with you, I'll send Binyamin. What is it that Yehuda say? Anybody remember the Pasuk? Avdech, right? Anochi e'ervenu. I will be a rave. The Gemara says, when Yehuda took a ravus for Binyamin, they're no longer two separate tribes. Yehuda is Binyamin, and Binyamin is Yehuda. There aren't two tribes splitting the city. They became one. And today, Yehuda survived. We don't know the ten Shvatim is a big question, even though two probably have come back, but it's still not clear. But we know that we're, Shevet, we're Yehuda, but we don't know if we're Binyamin Yehuda because we became one. Do you ever think about that? There's a tradition who's a Levi. There's no tradition whether you're from Shevet Binyamin or Yehuda. Because that's one tribe. Kol Yisrael doesn't just mean I'm responsible for you. It means I am you and you are me. When Yehuda says to Yosef, he is me and I am him, he's not... He's not saying that his life is worth less than Binyamin. He's saying his life and my life are one. So therefore, it doesn't make a difference which one of us goes into slavery. And that's why Yehuda can do that on a, on a, on a philosophical level. And I'll give you just one last piece that will demonstrate this. The Rambam in Hilchos Malachim has an unbelievable line. What is a king? What is a Jewish king? Right? Jewish king, what do we do when someone's, when someone's going to become king? You know, they, 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 the Navi comes and he says, we're ready, Mashiach is here, we're going to anoint Melech HaMashiach. It's not some mythical figure with long hair who walks on water. It's, it's some incredible bacher, you know? So, so the Sanhedrin comes, the Navi comes, they say, we found him. We found him, Yannison Cornwall. That's it, Melech, Melech Yannison, right? So what will we do? We'll take him down to the Gihon Springs. This has to be done by a body of water. That's another What will they do? What will the Navi do? Anybody know? What does he do? What's the ceremony of anointing a king? He takes, he takes a Karen of Shemen. You can look at this and say for Shmuel, what Shmuel tries to do with David Melech, right? And they take a drop of oil and they put the drop of oil on top of his forehead and it runs down his forehead. 
And you know, the briskers are really into this. What's a drop? How long is the drop? Does it have to go a tefach? What if it's less than a tefach? Is it olive oil? Okay. The Hasidim, they're just fascinated by the oil. Why are we anointing a king with oil? By the way, not just the king. We anoint the Navi with oil. We anoint the head of the Sanhedrin with oil. The Nasi with oil. Because what is oil? We just went through Hanukkah. What is oil? Oil is not the light. Oil is the vehicle for the light. The king is not the light. The king is the vehicle for the light. The king is meant to serve the Jewish people. Listen to what the Rambam says. The Zelchaz Malach in Gimel, right? Allah Chavav. Right? Shalibo Hulev Kolkahal Yisrael. The heart, the mind of the king is Am Yisrael. That's what a king is. True leadership is that your heart is all about the people. A person who is a healthy teacher is not for him. It's for you. That's what it's supposed to be. And a king is here for Am Yisrael. And Yehuda in that moment demonstrates that it's not about him. And if you think about it, this is Rambam Helchodeot par excellence. Character flaw, it's all about me. Tikkun, it's not about me. What's it about? It's about the fact that Hashem is in every human being. Yehuda says it's not about me. It's about Binyamin. And, and Yehuda in this moment completely undoes the mistake that he made when he put himself and the brothers before Yosef. And that's how Yehuda becomes a king. That's Samach Mempei. I will always wonder about that story. Did he have a Havamina that he would get there and back? Did he just feel he just couldn't leave Mountain Shetach? Or did he understand that in the Israeli army, an officer, the meaning of being an officer, is that you live and breathe taking care of your men? That was that moment. Now we are Kol Yisrael Arivim We sit here, and we're learning, we're growing, but it can't be just about us. It's about something so much bigger than us. Is our Torah so that the Jewish people can get to where they need to get to? You know, you're all in different ways. You're going to be in different places eventually, different campuses, you know? And you had this fantastic experience where you got all this Torah. But if the Torah is just about me, if it's just me gaining from my Torah, then what's the point of all that Torah? If it's a vehicle to bring that light into the world, to make a difference, an opportunity to share something with people around you, that's powerful. And that's why this parsha starts with Vayigash. Yehuda strides forth to become Yehuda. In this moment, he becomes who he's meant to be. There is a lot more to talk about in this parsha, but that's a little bit of food for thought.